friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Hello, Tomb Believers. You're listening to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I'm Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. And we have a very special episode for you today, don't we, James? Well, really, aren't they all special? You know, we, we take the time to spend some time with these, our lovely listeners, even though none of them have bothered to send any rescue crews or anything else to rescue us from this dark, foreboding tomb. Right, but you see, this this episode is so special, we've recorded it twice. True. You see, living in a dark and foreboding tomb as we do, our power is not always the most reliable. And though we did record these comics we talk, we're talking about this week, Monster of Frankenstein number 2, Tomb of Dracula number 7, and Werewolf by Night number 4, Due to intermediate brownouts here in the tomb, that audio was lost, as you may remember if you listened to our last episode. Right, and so we are going to do our best to talk through those issues again, to try and uh, recapture some of that magic for you, um, because we certainly don't want to skip over any of these issues. Um, and No, uh, definitely not. And so we do apologize if... It seems like we gloss over anything. We're sort of coming at this a second time. <clears throat> but uh, I think it's still going to be a lot of fun. There's some interesting stuff to talk about with all three of these issues. And uh, I think even this time around, it should make for a pretty fun uh, discussion. Right. Although we do have some things we want to talk about first. As you guys know, both Trey and I are big fans of Joe Bob Briggs. And yes. I think it was announced today, he's getting his own series, right? Oh, I am so excited. Uh, he is going to be doing a series of live double features on Shudder. Right. Um, starting, I believe, at the end of March. Um, and they haven't announced movie titles yet, but honestly, with Joe Bob, it doesn't really matter. Because he is going to make it fun with his wraparounds, and his host segments in between, no matter what movies they choose. Like I said, I would watch Joe Bob introduce, you know, old 1940s hygiene films. He makes it that entertaining. <laughs> right. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, it's definitely something to look forward to. I still, on an almost weekly basis, go back to some of his uh, movies that he's done for Shudder already. Uh, be it with the initial last drive-in marathon or the Thanksgiving marathon or the Christmas marathon. Um, he, he's still got that uh, special something that just makes all of those movies really fun to watch. Speaking of special somethings, he's also got Darcy the Mail Girl. This is true. Um, and uh, I'm not going to lie, I do enjoy the way that he that she is able to ruffle his feathers with uh, her preference for remakes in a lot of cases. I don't think we've mentioned this on the show, but she actually follows us on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and, and uh, is very active online. She's very quick to respond. Uh, if you have not uh, followed uh, either her or Joe Bob Briggs, uh, definitely do so because uh, they're they a lot of fun both on the television and online. So if you're out there listening, Darcy, hello. Speaking of followers on Facebook, um, we also got another follower. Uh, a big influence on me, or at least one of the show that's been a huge influence on me as far as comedic uh, influence, George Lowe. Oh, yeah. That is a, a, a really special thing, um, which, if you're not familiar, uh, he voiced the title character on Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Right. Perhaps the greatest talk show in history. <laughs> I, I'm not even joking there. And... Yeah, and he has—he's another one who has been uh, fairly active on social media in uh, in uh, recently, and uh, we're sort of happy to have gotten his attention. Yeah, I think actually, how did we get his attention? Uh, that was probably all you, because I, all I know is I logged into Twitter one day and there he was. So, okay, all right, okay. <sighs> I posted some fan art where somebody did a crossover between MST3K and Space Ghost Coast to Coast. And as you guys all know, I'm a huge Misty. Yes. And as a side note to that, I posted an appearance that Joel did, uh, the creator of MST3K, um, an appearance he did on Space Ghost Coast to Coast around the time he was doing TV Wheel which was his follow-up to MST3K after he left the show. Um, right. A very, very short-lived project for HBO, which is a very interesting thing in itself, uh, where there were sets that were on a wheel, and the uh, camera would be aimed at one section of the wheel, and they would move between the, sw- the, the um, different skits by spinning the wheel. That's interesting. Yes. So, like, all the sets for that episode would be placed, like, would be built onto the wheel. And they would transition to the next scene, again, by moving the wheel over. So, imagine, like, a pie chart. And that's how they they would build the sets. That's... I'm trying to picture that in my head, and it seems like a really fascinating concept well that's what joel's all about fascinating concepts like right trying different things with television and i think maybe it was just a little bit too weird it was on hbo so apparently joel they shot a pilot for it in 1995 and he funded most of it with his own money oh wow yeah so he like he poured most of his money into it. Uh, it was shot for HBO. Eventually, the pilot aired on Comedy Central. Oh, they aired it right after the final episode of MST3K that was on Comedy Central. Wow. Okay, and I guess the TV camera was in the middle of the wheel. Right. And the set would spin around the camera. That's what it looks like. And then the like 
and that allowed for some use of things like forced perspective. Right. God, I love Joel. Comes with some weird ideas. Um, Weird trivia. Before it was called the TV wheel, uh, initially they were referring to it as the Xbox. That is weird trivia. (laughs) Uh, So, I hear you've been watching some Harryhausen movies? I have. I very recently picked up a... Um, it's actually a UK set, but it's a, a limited edition box set of three Harryhausen projects from the 60s. Uh, First Men in the Moon, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, and Mysterious Island. I've really not watched a lot of Harryhausen movies unless I watched them when I was a kid. Except for the copy of Jason and the Argonauts, You Got Me. Um, right. Although, that Sinbad movie... That has Tom Baker in it. Is that a Harryhausen movie? That one is it. All <clears throat> there are three Harryhausen Sinbad movies. They all have totally different casts. Okay, but which one's that one? That one, I believe, is is it Golden Voyage? Yes, um, I think it's Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Yeah, and oh wait, now there is a Sinbad movie that I've seen. That I'm pretty sure isn't a Harryhausen film, and that's the one that was on MST3K. Yes. Because yes. that was actually, I want to say, a Russian film about a Russian hero who got renamed Sinbad for the English translation. Right, because the Harryhausen movies were big. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there there have been lots of Sinbad movies over the years. Uh, the, In my opinion, the best ones were the Harryhausen ones because they had the you know, stop motion effects, but, uh, there were also, um, like, there were Sinbad movies in the 40s, uh, there was, uh, there was an anime version, I think, at Mm -hmm. one point, uh, that I think Tezuka was involved with, um, there was, uh, a Lou Ferrigno project from the late 80s, um, which was Italian. Um, so Sinbad has been adapted a bunch. Uh, the Harryhausen movies are fun. The Probably the best is Golden Voyage, which has Tom Baker, the fourth Doctor, in it. Um, although I do enjoy the, the one that came before that, the seventh voyage of Sinbad. Um, that's the one where, near the end, Sinbad has a one-on-one sword fight with a skeleton, which sort of... Uh, anticipates the skeleton fight from Jason and the Argonauts. Okay, so the one I was thinking of was the Magic Voyage of Sinbad, which in its original release was called Sadco. Mm -hmm. But again, was renamed Sinbad for the American market. You find that a lot. Just like uh, there was a period of time where every Sword and Sandals movie that came out uh, ended up getting redubbed to make the main character Hercules. Yeah. Which happens a lot. You're right. And there's several of those in between MST, MST3K and Rift Tracks. You can see a bunch of those. <laughs> Which, always a good use of your time. Yeah, yeah. I was watching... Um, 
um, an action. I was actually watching a cinematic Titanic episode the other day, which was the terror of Tiki Island. Okay. But I think originally that one was sorry danger on tiki island and originally that movie was brides of blood from 1968 which it's your standard tale of this scientist who go to the south pacific to study atomic um testings effects on native populations and end up fighting a scientist who turns into a sludge monster oh i mean sure like you do yeah and you know some virgin sacrifices along the way right yeah looks like it was actually a spanish film filmed in the philippines okay Reissued in the late 70s under a new title, Grave Desires, on a double bill with Count Dracula's Great Love. Now retitled Cemetery Girls. Huh. Which kind of brings us back to Joe Bob Briggs, because there's this great tradition of drive-in schlock getting retitled and reissued every couple of years. Oh, for sure. Like, uh, uh, in fact, one of the ones I was re-watching the other day, uh, was uh oh it was the last one from the dinners of death uh thanksgiving marathon which i still need to finish follow watching the last movie of that thanksgiving marathon was called blood rage but in his opening monologue introducing the movie uh he points out that it went through so many different distributors and they went through so many different re-edits and attempts to release it that it it had you know easily three or four other titles over the course of its release well wasn't part of that the idea that you know once they put it as like the second bill and once you're like maybe five minutes into it you realize ah crap i've seen this before you're already parked in so you can't get away right and so and also in some cases it it really was they were sort of re-editing it to try and make it a slightly different movie like, some of the edits, they took out the gore, then they put it back in, then, you know, they kept changing it around. And, and sometimes they would add, like, more gore or random topless shots, depending on what decade we're talking about. Right. Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, Blood Rage, 1987, although it was shot earlier, like 1983, uh, Blood Rage is the original title and is what you'll currently find it under, but it was also released as Slasher. And it was also released as Nightmare at Shadow Woods. Yeah, I mean, you, you you just see it a lot. And again, it's just, I don't think you can get away with it nowadays. Not as much. Mostly mostly what you see now are international releases where titles get changed. Right, like, um, what's that Tom Cruise movie that I like a lot with Emily Blunt? Oh, uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, or... If you buy it on DVD, Live, Die, Repeat. Which is such a better title. I, I actually really like Edge of Tomorrow, but... Why? Why? Okay, first, why call it Edge of Tomorrow? Live, Die, Repeat pretty much tells you all you need to know about the movie going in. I, mean, I guess. It's like a slightly less blunt version of Snakes on a Plane. 
Although, really, <clears throat> the best title is the title of the Japanese novel that it's based on. Isn't that Live, Die, Repeat? No. The Japanese title translates roughly to All You Need Is Kill. Yeah, you're right. I have that novel somewhere. Because um, it, it also got a manga adaptation, but... But yeah, like that, it doesn't tell you what it's about, really, but it's a cool title. Yeah, which, you know, there's a lot to be said for a cool title. Again, thinking back to Snakes on a Plane, which for a hot minute there, they tried to change it to Flight 731 or something. Oh yeah, and Samuel Jackson threatened to walk off. Yeah, which they needed him for reshoots anyway, so they're like, no, I guess we're just going to change it back. Like, he signed on because of the title. Yeah. Which Samuel Jackson's fun like that. Like, well, and he like he, he basically just said he wanted to do a fun monster movie. So I know you didn't watch the Oscars. But No, I did not. Did you watch the clip of Samuel L. Jackson giving Spike Lee the Oscar? I did. I, I saw that I saw Spike Lee leap into Samuel Jackson's arms. Like which was adorable. Like, you know, Scooby and Shaggy. It was, yep. it was really great. Yeah, no, that was, I was very happy that Spike Lee got the Oscar. At, as an NYU grad myself, I was very happy that Spike Lee got the Oscar after all these years. <laughs> so, speaking of, well, nothing actually. We should probably, ju- <laughs> we, we should probably just get to the comics. <laughs> we probably should. We have, we have made them wait this long, and... Recorded so many times already. (laughs) So we'll be right back with Tomb of Dracula number seven right after this. Something is terribly wrong with the children of Midwich. There have been a few casualties. They control your mind. There are going to be changes. They control your thoughts. What are they going to do to us? And nothing can stop them. Christopher Reeve, Kirstie Alley, John Carpenter's Village of the Damned, rated R, starts Friday at theaters everywhere. And we're back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast with our first comic of the episode, Tomb of Dracula number seven, Night of the Deathstalkers. It's from March 1973, written by Marv Wolfman, penciler Gene Colan, inker Tom Palmer, letterer John Costanza, And the editor is Roy Thomas. We open with Dracula conjuring a blizzard from a ledge overlooking London. Thirsty for blood, he transforms into a bat and flies toward the city. In London, a woman named Edith walks home, alone, when Dracula descends on her. But to his surprise, she recognizes him and repels him with the crucifix around her neck. He strikes her unconscious, but unable to feed, he retreats leaving Edith to the rats. However, the rats are dispersed by an old man in a wheelchair accompanied by his dog, Saint, who reveals that Edith is his daughter, and also that he will send a telegram to Rachel Van Helsing about Dracula's attack. Dracula soon reunites with his servant, Clifton Graves, and begins preparations to confront Rachel Van Helsing and Frank Drake. Meanwhile, Frank, Rachel, and Taj are tying up loose ends from the previous issue when Rachel's telegram arrives from Quincy Harker and the vampire hunters depart for London. Quincy is the son of Jonathan and Mina Harker and a believer in using science and technology to 
defeat vampires. Quincy and Saint meet them at the train station and invite them to stay as guests at his estate. In his subterranean weapons room, Harker shows the other vampire hunters his latest invention, a net launcher designed to trap Dracula in bat or mist form. Quincy briefly recounts the story of his parents' struggles against Dracula, as well as his own crusade against vampires in the years that followed. After injuries confined him to a wheelchair, he began mentoring and sponsoring other vampire hunters such as Rachel, developing new weapons and strategies for them to use. Meanwhile, Dracula awakens and hypnotizes a crowd of children into an army of young assassins. He instructs Graves to keep an eye on the children while he sets his trap to ensnare the vampire hunters. The vampire lord attacks his next victim near the Harker estate, drawing the attention of Frank, Rachel, and the others. They attack, and after a brief fight, Dracula escapes, but flying low enough for them to follow. Suspecting they might be headed into a trap, Quincy instructs his daughter to contact a mysterious ally should anything happen. The vampire hunters break in and put a stake through the body in Dracula's coffin, but it is not Dracula. Dracula escapes again, leaving the vampire hunters to fight the hypnotized children. So this is the first Marv Wolfman issue. Right, we get Marv Wolfman here, which is really exciting because, um, I don't know if many of our listeners know, but Marv Wolfman's really the guy who puts this comic on the map, and he really... He, he's the exclusive writer of this title until it ends, I think, with issue 70. I believe so. He is very much the guiding force for the rest of this run. Which, that being said, it really isn't a revolution for the series. It's, again, right. very much we're going to have the, the cast encounter the horror trope of the month this case being the Children of the Damned. Right. Yeah, very much uh, very similar visual style to the posters and advertising for the Village of the Damned movie where uh, creepy children with psychic powers attack people. Which, if we're talking about the cover for a second there, (laughs) this is a textbook case of the cover of the comic being the last page of the issue because the the cast the vampire hunters really don't encounter the children like they do in the cover until the to be continued part on the last page right yeah the cover doesn't really have anything to do with what actually happens in the comic um in part because Dracula and the vampire hunters are pretty much kept separate for most of the comic. Right. Um, so speaking of the vampire hunters, what do you think of Harker? He has a lot of potential. Um, I like the idea of a network of vampire hunters and that they all have this like Q figure who designs their gear. Me too. That said, it would help if after having had that gear demonstrated, they would maybe use it when presented with the perfect opportunity. Exactly, right? So you have this net that is has silver balls attached to it so it stops a vampire from transforming. I think they're filled with garlic too, right? 
Yeah, like the garlic is, it's in these weighted balls, and the idea is that if he tries to turn into mist, he'll run into those garlic balls and, and not be able to keep his shape. Exactly. But I feel like it's Chekhov's net gun, because <laughs> <laughs> you demonstrate the um, net with the garlic balls, and... My first thought is, okay, they're going to use this in the issue to great effect to stop Dracula from turning into mist. Instead, Dracula turns into mist multiple times to escape from them, and they don't use the net, which would be super effective at all. They even <clears throat> they even comment as he is flying away from the fight that he's flying really low and really slowly. Right. Almost as if he's a perfect target for a net. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, and that's not, that is not a fault of Quincy Harker. That is the fault of the other vampire hunters. Right. I mean, Quincy Harker's, like, got this perfect weapon for stopping all the stupid crap that goes on here. And they laugh at him. They don't laugh at him, but they dismiss him. Which, and again, I, I really like that the character is connected to the original novel. That that he, he brings in that connection to sort of classical Dracula. Although, um, I'm not sure exactly how sure he's supposed to be depicted as, how old he's supposed to be depicted as being here. I guess maybe he's in his 80s? That would seem to be about right. It's hard to tell with, like, he, he's wearing this scarf that covers a lot of his face and a hat and, and the facial hair. It's sort of hard to see exactly how old he is. Right. Which, of course, I'm not sure if this is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen um, speaking here, but, of course, I see him always wearing a scarf and a turtleneck, and I'm merely assuming he must have scarring on his neck from vampire attacks. I mean, that would be really cool, actually. Well, his mom had it in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Right, right. Uh, and both of his parents, at various times, had been bitten by vampires. True. True. Um, Trey, you've been to London, right? I have. Are there a lot of tall ledges around the city? Not that I really remember. Now, I didn't spend a lot of time, like, on the outskirts of London, but, like, it's not what I would call a mountainous region. Right. And yet, we have, on the first page here, uh, the... We have Dracula overlooking the city of London while summoning a blizzard. Yep. Also, Edith. Let's talk about Edith for a mm -hmm. second. Do you think she's doomed? Oh, most most definitely. Like, I definitely get the feeling that Edith <clears throat> is not long for this series. Yeah, I, I would not be surprised if she either dies or turns within the next, I don't know, five or six issues. Right, because so far, now these have not been Marv Wolfman, but so far, the writers of the series love doing that thing where they um, get you attached to a female character and then have her fall victim to vampirism. Yes, that that is a thing that has been fairly common. Um, and I do think that right now we're not getting 
Marv Wolfman at 100%. Like, this is Marv Wolfman basically sort of matching what has been done up to this point in the book. Like, he's easing his way in. Okay, I'll buy that. Um, <clears throat> that said, one thing that Wolfman does that I think is really cool and that is something that we can certainly look forward to is we get a little bit of foreshadowing um, with uh, Edith being instructed to contact one of Quincy Harker's associates. So, do you think this is who I think it is, right? I mean... It's, it's totally Buck Cohen. If, if we're... <laughs> this he only deals he only deals with werewolves okay no this is why he hasn't been showing up in werewolf by night because he's going to show up in tomb of dracula right <laughs> i mean that would be cool i would not i would not object to that but that's not who i'm thinking i'm thinking of the original marvel movie star Blade the Vampire Hunter. Oh, I was going to say The Incredible Hulk. You know, Dracula versus Hulk would be a really fun issue. I'm sure it's happened before. I'm almost certain it has happened. In fact, I think it happened on Agents of Smash. Ha. Which I don't watch because, you know, I don't know. I haven't really watched any of the Marvel series, Marvel cartoons since... They canceled Avengers Earth's Mightiest. That was a good one. It was a really good one. And then they kind of just told them, all right, guys, wrap it up. We want to start a new series. And it's like, well, dang. Um, apparently there are rumors that there may be another Wesley Snipes Blade movie. Okay, so this is going back to the fact that we're pretty sure the associate that Harker's asking Edith to call for is Blade, correct? I am fairly certain. I would not be surprised if Quincy is the guy making all of Blade's gear at this point. Okay, so you said you're possibly making another Blade movie? Wesley Snipes? The, uh, there are rumors. I haven't seen anything official, but I, I've seen some rumblings that, that Wesley Snipes is in talks. Is that good or bad? It depends on who they allow to write it, write and direct it. Uh, so you mean not Dave Goyer? Yes, actually. That that would be a good first step, would be banning him from the set. I think Wesley Snipes would get behind that. <laughs> um, I don't know. If they bring Wesley Snipes back as Blade, does that mean the previous Blade movies are now MCU canon? Not necessarily. Okay. So, oh, speaking of film versions of uh, Marvel movies, or Marvel Tomb of Dracula characters, if you look on page 27, is it just me, or does Harker look a lot like Sean Connery on that panel? Yes, he does. He looks a lot like, in particular, Sean Connery of, like, the late 90s. Like, he looks like Sean Connery now, which is weird, because that's not what Sean <laughs> right, Connery looked right. like in 1973. <laughs> no, not at all. But I look at it, and I'm, I'm the whole time I'm, th I'm thinking, you know, he'd make a... Sean Connery make a good Quincy Harker. Except he's apparently retired. Eh, you back up a truck of money. 
He'd show up. <laughs> it's, you know, one of those Disney trucks of money. Right, right. Which, it would be really weird if they just, like, they decide they're going to do Marvel horror movies to compete with the Dark Universe stuff. Right. I, I've said for a while, well, this was back when they still had their Netflix deal, but I, I was thinking the next phase of Marvel, like, miniseries TV shows like that should have been, like, horror-related characters. It does. It doesn't really fit with the kind of um, fun for the whole family sort of movies they've been making up to now. Right. That's why, I was, like, I was thinking the the TV stuff has been a little more adult oriented. That's a place where you could easily move from the street level heroes of the Defenders into something like uh, Blade, Moon Knight, Ghost Rider, stuff like that. I could see that. And culminating, instead of with Defenders, that series would culminate with a crossover, The Midnight Suns. And I can kind of see them doing it through their Fox imprint, so they can have, like, R-rated Marvel horror films. <clears throat> right. Call it Marvel Knights, if you like. Ooh, that's <laughs> nice. Because apparently they are going to continue doing, like, Deadpool movies. Yes, yes. Which, I would not be surprised there if they just have Deadpool reference the fact that he's owned by Disney now. Oh yeah, no, he's the one character who would know that something has changed. Right. Like, he just goes and kills a bunch <laughs> of people while wearing mouse ears. Like, you can you could legit drop him into the MCU continuity and just let him be aware of the fact that he's in a new continuity. Well, the directors of the first Deadpool movie dropped a bunch of hints about that they were already in the MCU because, you know, that fight at the end is on a helicarrier. Right, right. I mean, if you, if you, if you, like, composite all the shots of, because they never really give a full outward shot of what they're fighting on, but it's the helicarrier. If If you, like... There have been people on YouTube who have pieced together the shots. I mean, like, yeah, that's a helicarrier. Huh. And the director's like, yeah, it was a helicarrier. <laughs> we just, we're like, we just like, it's not like they could stop us. Right. So, yeah. The last fight at the end of Deadpool is on a helicarrier. But yeah, so no, I would like to see more of the horror characters show up in adaptations. I wouldn't be surprised if they did it like <clears throat> for Marvel, sorry, not Marvel, um, Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah, as, as the streaming thing. Because apparently they're going to do a Scarlet Witch series, a Vision series, and, yep, Loki. and a Loki series. Like, Loki tells yep. his greatest hits. Which I'm like, does this mean Tom Holland's going <clears> to <throat> tell me by the time he turned into a horse and had you know, gave birth to a fawn. Huh. His fawn was a baby horse, right? Uh, Tom Hiddleston, I've, it's been pointed yes. out. Yeah, sorry. I, I was picturing the kid from Spider-Man, and that was not a place that I wanted my brain to go. Although he does look good in drag. Fair. Totally fair. 100%. If you don't know what we're talking about, 
look up on YouTube his lip sync video. It is amazing. Absolutely amazing. <clears throat> All right. I think once we get to Tom Holland and drag, we are pretty much exhausted our what we have to talk about for Tumor Dracula. Yeah. I mean, it's it not a whole lot happens, which has been a problem with the last couple of issues. Um but I'm I'm hopeful that this is the turning point with Wolfman taking over um <clears throat> that we're going to start seeing more of his influence on the plotting as we go from here. I hope so. All right, so we'll be right back with Monster of Frankenstein number two, right after this message. Hi, you look like you could use some breakfast. How about some honey nut Cheerios? It's okay, it's okay. Look, it's got real golden honey. Honey, good. Good. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Our next issue is a return to the Monster Frankenstein series with Monster Frankenstein number two, Bride of the Monster. Cover date on this issue is March 1973. Writer is Gary Friedrich. Penciler is Mike Plug. Inker is Mike Plug. Letter is John Costanza. Editor is Roy Thomas. The monster is awakened by the cabin fire that ended last issue, melting the ice holding him in suspended animation. He is found by the cabin boy, who is immediately knocked unconscious by the lurching ship. The creature takes the boy above deck to escape from the fire, but the boy quickly becomes his hostage as the creature is discovered and set upon by the hostile crew. To stop them killing the creature, the captain continues the story of the creature's creation, after escaping Frankenstein's lab, he comes upon a cabin in the woods in which lives a blind man, his daughter, and a daughter's husband. The monster learns to speak and yearns for companionship. One day, when the daughter and son-in-law were away, he rescues the old man from a hungry wolf and attends to the man as he recovers. The two quickly strike up a friendship, but it's all for naught as the old man's family comes home sees the hideous creature standing over the injured father and attack it, driving the creature into the woods. The villagers try to hunt the creature, sending a pack of dogs after the creature, who makes short work of the hounds in his rage. The hunters fire upon the creature, hitting him in his shoulder, but through his pain, he hurls a boulder at them, chasing them away. Now alone, the injured creature resolves to seek vengeance. Not vengeance against the villagers or humanity, but against the man who created him, Victor Frankenstein. We then flash forward to the cave we left last issue, where the monster has related a story to his creator, explaining the murder of the latter's younger brother in the first issue. The creature then reveals to Frankenstein that he may gain a reprieve from his revenge if he were to complete but one task for the creature, the creation of a mate. The doctor is at first reluctant, but alas relents as he and the creature together collect the materials necessary for the construction of another body. Like the experiment before it, the experiment is a success, as the hideous cry of the monster rises from the slab. Upon seeing a second such creation, however, Frankenstein is overcome with revulsion and guilt, and sets upon and slays the newborn bride with a knife before running out into the night. 
the creature witnesses his creator's flight and upon entering the lab, finds the body of his promised bride. As the creature mourns his mate, Frankenstein's friend Clavel enters and in his rage, the creature crushes him to death. Victor returns to his lab to find his dead friend as the police arrive and arrest the stunned Frankenstein for murder. We then return to the deck of the storm-tossed ship as the standoff between the creature and crew is interrupted by a collision with an iceberg, sending all aboard to a seemingly watery grave. There are a lot of flashbacks in this issue. There are flashbacks within flashbacks. Really, it's only one flashback but within a flashback, but even that seems like too many flashbacks. It's a complicated structure. Maybe, and I guess the problem is the frame narrative isn't really going anywhere yet. And so what the, the interesting part of the book is the retelling of the novel. But we keep getting pulled away from that retelling of the novel to find out more about these people on the boat. Which, okay, I'm curious... Why do we have this modern-day framing without Frankenstein? Because in a novel, it's it's Frankenstein relaying the, the story of the monster to the ship's captain. But instead, we have the ship's captain relaying the story of the monster, which was related to him by his grandfather, who had it related to him by Victor Frankenstein. Right. And uh, all I can figure is that it's because they were already, like they were thinking ahead to this book being an ongoing title. And so at some point, fairly soon, they're going to run out of novel to adapt. <clears throat> and right. when we that are happens... still within the uh, novel adaptation portion of the... Uh, series. Right. And I think they wanted to be at a place where as soon as they were done telling that adaptation, they would be able to put some chronological distance between their stories and when that adaptation took place. Which I suppose is hard for the late 1700s, early 1800s. But... And so, yeah, so I think that's, that's part of it, is they just wanted, they wanted to once they start telling their original stories, they did not want to be so close in time that they would have to keep going back to these other characters that might still be alive. Yeah, I suppose. So, let's talk about the bride. Yeah. Why is she hideous? So, <clears throat> I've been thinking about this, and... My best guess, it's, and I, I've, I've never seen any interviews with the creators one way or the other, but my guess is that they wanted to go out of their way to do the opposite of what you might expect if all you know of Frankenstein are the Universal Monster movies. Okay. And so, uh, Elsa Lanchester as the bride in Bride of Frankenstein is not terribly scarred. Like, she has she has a very iconic look with the... Uh, she has some stitching, she has the bandages, 
and she has but the she has sort of the... beehive hair. D- yeah, what? the lightning bolt beehive. Yeah, the lightning bolt streaks through her hair. And it, it it's iconic, but in the 70s, probably not as scary, especially on the page. Yeah. Which, okay, we... It explains why they didn't, they didn't just take a fairly fresh body and reanimate it. Uh, right. That does bring me to another point, though. Uh, Mike Plew's artwork is still on point here, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think also maybe <clears throat> Plug is sort of enjoying the loosening of restrictions from the code. You think so? I mean, because it's a pretty gruesome, especially in close-up, a pretty gruesome character. Yeah, it is pretty scary looking. I admit that. She's, um, yeah. And it's the sort of reanimating the dead that the Code tended to frown on in years past. I guess that might be another reason why she isn't just a reanimated corpse, that she's a stitched together humoculus of other yeah, yeah. Animate other body parts because they're still trying to skirt around the whole uh, code thing against zombies, although we're probably going to get the zombie very shortly. Oh yeah, yeah. We are we are coming up on uh, what Simon Garth. Simon Garth, yeah. Yeah. Fairly, so, fairly so it's shortly. coming. Right. Yeah, and but with this, I again, I think I think it was a good choice to make the bride so hideous because that probably helps justify the very extreme reaction that. Frankenstein has. True. I think it his I think his murder of the bride would have been a lot harder to swallow for a lot of people if she looked like this gorgeous creature. Right. Well, and that and I mean <clears throat> we could get into a lot of things that are different from the novel, but that is a thing that is different from the novel is that he bothers to reanimate her in the first place. True. In the actual novel, he tears her apart before he brings her to life. Right. Yeah, That that's what Frankenstein's monster sees, is the destruction of the body before it's reanimated, not the murder of the bride after she's come to life. Which, I actually think that this way may be a little more poignant with the creature finding the body after the fact. Mm-hmm. Rather than um, watching Frankenstein tear the not yet animated corpse or not yet animated body to pieces. Right. Because if you look at his discovery of the of the bride on page 24, he, he looks sad. Everything wrecked as if there were some great struggle. And she's lying there, so still. Yeah. Yeah. 
It, uh, that's good stuff. Well, it, it allows Plug to also show off the expressiveness of the monster. True. And it does <clears throat> possibly make the... Well, no, it definitely makes the creature a more sympathetic character. Yeah. I think in the original novel, there is much more of a justification on the part of Frankenstein of why he destroys the bride. Right. The idea that he doesn't want to that the, the creature and the bride to become the progenitors of a new race of monsters that could replace humanity. Right, which that never really comes up in the comic. No, although, even when I was reading the comic, the whole time I was thinking, well, if you don't want them to have children that will replace humanity, just don't give her ovaries. Right. I mean, I mean yeah, like, that's the... Like, he could leave out some parts, and she would still be alive yeah you you and it's not like they would know right so i that's one big plot hole i had with both the novel and here where it's kind of like you could have just given him the bride and let him go off and then you're not not worth to worry about anymore but there you go well just uh, sort of thinking to myself, uh, the, I guess the frame narrative in this issue just feels less plausible, consequential, I don't know, like, that he stops to sort of tell parts of this story <laughs> on the deck of the ship in the worst possible circumstances. Right, okay, so the monster is holding the cabin boy hostage while they're in a storm yep while while the boat's on while fire while the boat's on fire and while they're bearing down an iceberg yep and he's and the crew is threatening to mutiny right but let's stop everything for story time right and that just feels weird to me and and the reason i bring this up is because not long after the monster finding the body of the bride and then sort of retaliating by killing Henry. Uh, Like we sort of go back to that in time for the iceberg. And it just, it's sort of, you sort of forget that it's even happening at the time. Like you've, I had, by the time I got to the death of the bride, I had sort of forgotten that the frame narrative was even happening. Right. And by, you know, introducing the iceberg like this, it's kind of disappointing because now we know how the series will end with the monster throwing the heart of the ocean back and below the waves and you know <laughs> telling the cabin boy he'll never let go which uh, you know I might be able to buy there wasn't room on the door for both the monster and Jack <laughs> In that case, because the monster is somewhat bigger. This is true. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, one side note has nothing to do whatsoever with the story itself, but just uh, 
in Stan's soapbox on uh, the next to last page, uh, they make note that as this issue was coming out, <clears throat> um, Herb Trimpey had married Linda Fight. Okay. Uh, Herb Trimpey being on the Hulk book at the time, and Linda Fight being scripter of the cat. Right, right. So that sort of helps put sort of a, a very specific time and set of circumstances around when these books were coming out. True. True. Musing that, as with the last issue, the art is really good. It is. Really good artwork. Yeah, it doesn't... Like, it, it's it's consistent with the previous issue. Actually, I would argue it's not as good as the previous issue, but it's still okay. good. It doesn't fall short the way some of Plug's work on Werewolf by Night does. Right. I think part of it is... <clears throat> The monster is so expressive, especially in close-up, that it really... He, he's playing to his strengths here by relying a lot on facial expressions. Right. I mean, this isn't Bernie Wrightson's uh, Monster of Frankenstein, but... Sure. It, 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 it's close. It, it's sort of splitting the difference between that and the Universal version. Which I can dig that. Yeah, no, I, like I said, I am looking forward to reading more of this book. Um, I, I'm, as much as I'm enjoying the adaptation of the novel, I'm almost ready for him to wrap it up so that he can get to, to, so that he can get beyond the frame narrative. Right, I'm kind of, I'm interested in Frankenstein meeting Dracula, meeting the werewolf, and really meeting the rest of the Marvel Universe, which is something I'm kind of interested in with all of our Marvel horror characters so far, because we haven't really had yeah. that. <clears throat> I was uh, chatting with someone the other day, and uh, that was exactly what I said, was when, when uh, he asked how the podcast was going, and, and uh, I was uh, saying, you know, I thought that I really knew, like, Tomb of Dracula and, and some of these horror books, but it turned out what I was thinking of were the later issues where they were fully a part of the Marvel Universe. Uh, yeah, so, so like, what it turns out, when I think of Tomb of Dracula, I think of Dracula fighting the Silver Surfer, you know? Uh, and so, but yeah, so, I guess what I'm saying is I am very much eagerly anticipating seeing some of these horror characters start to interact with non-horror superhero characters. Me too. So, I think that does it for Monster of Frankenstein. What about you? I think so. Uh, looking forward to more, but also very much looking forward to getting off of that boat. Yeah. I, 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 Which, I mean, technically, they're all getting off the boat now. This is true, because it is underwater. Which will put out the fire. <laughs> hey, you know, bright Look side. Look for the silver lining when there are <laughs> clouds that appear in the blue. Crap. And on that note, uh, we will be back with Werewolf by Night right after this message. We got a little game we'd like you to play with us. On Friday, August 20th, hunting season begins. Start running. Madrow is the target we're after. Look at it this way. You're going to get to meet Elvis? 
from internationally acclaimed action director John Woo. Give me the rest, pal. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Hunting season is over. Is the hard target. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 20th at theaters everywhere. And we're back to Tomb of Ideas with Werewolf by Night number four, The Danger Game, Third Night. Its cover date is March 1973, written by Jerry Conway, penciler is Mike Plug, inker Frank Boll, letterer Charlotte Jetter, editor Roy Thomas. A cowboy, Joshua Kane, is attacking the werewolf, and he intends to kill it with silver bullets. Suddenly, realizing the danger, the werewolf runs for its life. As it flees, the werewolf flashes back to the events of the last 24 hours. Having rescued Jack's sister in the previous issue, the werewolf is about to depart when she awakens and, after a moment of terror, realizes that the werewolf is her brother Jack. In a panic, the beast runs away to avoid harming her. At that moment, she's found by Joshua Kane and to protect her, the werewolf leaps into action. Just at that moment, however, the moon goes down, and Jack Russell is human once more. He awakens in a room full of hunting trophies, soon revealed to be Castle Kane. Kane is a big game hunter who has become bored of conventional prey. He makes a deal with Jack. In exchange for his sister's life, Kane will get a chance to hunt the werewolf, with an old movie set as the hunting ground. Back in the present, the werewolf tires of running and launches a surprise attack from a nearby rooftop. He knocks Kane from his horse, and the fight becomes a hand-to-hand -hand brawl. Kane draws a sword and briefly gets the upper hand before the werewolf disarms him. The wolf limps away, and Kane draws his pistol to pursue. As the fight goes on, Kane becomes more and more animalistic. In a rage, he follows the wolf back into his castle. He sees a beast in the shadows moving toward him, and in, in fear he fires, but the thing falls on him, apparently crushing him. In the light, we see his body surrounded by memorabilia from the most dangerous game, and it becomes clear that the now-human Jack Russell tricked Kane with one of his own taxidermy trophies. This was a heavy-handed issue. Now, you're right about that, boy. I tell you what, that was a bit heavy-handed you know as we used to say down on the, the farm or you know a, a bit on the nose there boy uh that didn't get old after the first page yeah i, I like i have a note here saying 12 pages and i'm sick of this guy saying boy or is it bow it's never so i i was kind of reading this bow but i think bow and boy are like sort of on the they're, they're right next to each other on the spectrum of southern sayings yeah they're both i don't know so what do we think of this comic um i could have done without it honestly yeah um the only the only thing of note <clears throat> happens not in the first few pages, because there's an unnecessary frame narrative, but chronologically, in the first moments of the story, when Jack's sister wakes up and realizes that he's the werewolf. Like, yeah, I, mean, I wanted a whole comic, I wanted a whole comic about that. Right, and I think as far as things we actually care about, 
that's really about it. Yeah. Um, because the rest is just an unnecessary werewolf versus villain of the month, which we've had a lot of. Yeah, and again, like we said, it is very much on the nose because it is the most dangerous game with werewolves. With a werewolf, rather. And... And and putting... I mean, making it a movie set and putting all the most dangerous game memorabilia in that final panel, like, it's just too much. It's way too much. And... There is nothing really threatening about Joshua Kane. No. Um now I, I like the I like the idea that he had actually like I guess on fairly short notice made the preparations to have silver bullets and I assume uh silver coating on his blades. But he's another nineteen seventies asshole in a cowboy hat. Which is a yep. trope of 1970s films, and I guess comic books as well. But I think off the air, you kind of said to me, there is nothing about this comic that wouldn't have been improved by Joshua Kane being replaced by Craven the Hunter. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, The as a villain, he's, a, he's blank. He's nothing. He's... There's nothing to him, really. And even the ending, where his bravado turns into fear, and he he panics and is apparently scared to death, like I said, heavy-handed, you don't... That doesn't feel earned. Because who is this guy and why do I care? You don't. That's the thing. The only people we care about as far as advancing the narrative are uh, Jack and his sister. And Right, because because Buck is not in this issue. Yeah, there's a Which let's let's face it, that's another strike against it right there. Yeah, this is what, I think the third issue where we've had no Buck Cohen. At least he got name dropped in the others. Yeah. And I'm starting I'm starting to get concerned. We're not... We may never see Buck Cohen again. Surely not. No, I mean, he's the character fine of 1972. I don't see how they could possibly (laughs) not include him. He's... I mean, he's... He's the star of the book, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. it's, It's Werewolf by Night starring Buck Cohen. Right. Referring, of course, to his, um, manly hairy chest. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, some of the art is pretty good. Uh, I- I've already said that Plug is really good at expressions, and there's some good close-ups of the werewolf. Um, there, are a, there are a couple of interesting transformation sequences that are done differently than how Plug has captured them in the past. And I can see where that's going to be sort of an ongoing thing, is uh, the artist sort of trying to come up with new and unique ways to show that transformation so that it doesn't become just a stock thing. Yeah. Uh, although, it, they do mention in the letter page kind of the same issue we've had, where... I'll go ahead and read the letter. 
Um, Dear Stan, Jerry, and Mike, Werewolf by Night number one was superb, art-wise and story-wise. I have one gripe, though, Jerry and Mike, so get ready. How come every time the werewolf gets in a fight with a foe, he gets whipped? For instance, in spotlight number two, he's nearly killed by Grant, just a large man. In spotlight number three, the werewolf and Craig go into the thick of battle, and naturally our werewolf was on the ground with Craig, who was about to slice him to pieces. Spotlight number four, this time Jack fought a couple of just plain men. He won, too, but not nearly as easily as he should have. I wait for Werewolf by Night number one, hoping that the werewolf will finally pull out a real victory. My hopes were shattered. Our hairy hero really got it laid on him this time by some freak named Strug. Nothing more than an over-muscled man without a brain. Come on, you guys, what are you trying to do? Kill him off this soon? Gosh, I hope not. Why, the werewolf lulled have polished off any of these foes that Jack had whip, got whipped by without even taking a deep breath. In one of the old movies, he fought Dracula to a standstill, and Dracula has a tr strength of 20 men. If Werewolf Jack Russell would have faced Dracula today, he'd get killed. A werewolf is supposed to have the strength of about 10 men. Please make Jack stronger. When he comes face to face with Marvel's Dracula, a battle which we inevitably will take place, he'll need it. Also, let's see more of Jack's friends. After all, that's what made Werewolf so famous, the continuous introduction of the new characters. Thanks for listening. Clint Higginbotham, Denison, Texas. So I think he agrees with us here. We need more Buck Cohen. Absolutely. That is the moral of that story. Right. Um, but, but also, he has a point that the werewolf is supposed to be a supernatural creature. Heck, he's connected to the Darkhold. Right. And yet, and yet he keeps struggling with these opponents who should not be able to overpower him. And the only way that I can see making that make sense is that because the werewolf and Jack are still struggling for control. Right. It's like Jack is fighting against the transformation, so because of that, he has less power. Right. Um, but even it, that's not something that's ever getting explicitly said. And so... I, as a reader, I shouldn't have to work that hard to make it make sense. Right. It, there should be something there to make it clear for us, which there isn't. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, it's this issue. I haven't looked ahead to the next issue yet, but I guarantee you, with the exception of Jack's sister finding out his secret, um, there is nothing else that matters in this issue going forward. No. Which, I don't know. I, I, like, there's nothing furthered about Jack Russell as a character. And I think, as far as that goes, Clint's right. We need more of the supporting cast. We need more mm -hmm. of Jack's sister, whose name I'm blanking on right now. Um, uh, we need... Lisa, Liza? Liza, thank you. We need more Buck Cohen. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know... It's just... Well, and just, if you look back to the last couple issues, even, like, when we were getting into the background of the Darkhold, and the connection between it and Jack Russell and Jack's father, like, that felt substantial. That felt like we were learning something important about the character. And he actually had a formidable opponent. Right. 
in the Minotaur guy he fought, whose name I'm again I'm blanking on. Sorry guys, it's late. Uh, but but yeah, like that we if you compare the last issue to this one, it's forgive the expression, night and day. Yeah. This I think we pointed out that last issue felt like the first really good issue of Werewolf by Night. I mean, we we've, we've <laughs> kind of gained an affinity for these characters over the course of the little snippets of character stuff we've gotten in these stories. But that was the first one where the character's arc seemed important to the overall story we're experiencing it. And... Yes. Again, like the like Clint points out in his letter, that's what made Spider-Man such a good t- title. You know, the stuff that was happening in the book felt like it was important to Peter Parker's overall arc where it seems like we're getting little snippets of domesticity and for Jack Russell and his supporting cast. And then it's to the action. Right. And you know, it's, you might say, well, this is only issue four. They're still finding their footing, but really if you count the spotlight issues, we're, this is like the seventh or eighth issue. Yeah. I feel like it really ought to have settled into not a formula because that that makes it sound like it would be boring, but uh, a a story structure that would find the right balance of character and action. Again, yeah, right. Where last issue feels like the right way to go after a bunch of issues Mm -hmm. going the wrong way and all of a sudden we're going the wrong way again. Right, and we're not talking about Ghost Rider this episode, but it's a similar problem that book is having. Um, both of them are sort of finding themselves torn between action-oriented one-offs like this and story-driven character moments with the supporting cast, and it hasn't figured out a way to put those two things together. No. Which is a shame, because I do like these characters. Absolutely. I just want more of them. Um, I do briefly just want to call out a regrettably racist moment in the middle of the comic, just because it's awful, um, where our villain, uh, as he has graduated from hunting big game to hunting people, um, is shooting a very offensively drawn uh, African tribesmen in the back yeah um it's really unfortunate um it 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 seems unnecessary like we already know he's willing to kill people he told us that like a page ago yeah and i don't know i mean we see this a lot i mean we see this it, it it's easy to say it's the 1970s. Like, it's at a time when that happened a lot. Like, is in terms of cultural depictions. But it's still not cool. No, no it isn't. It, it's murder. No, any way you cut it, it's murder. <clears throat> and it does... Well, and, and also the, the way that the character is drawn is probably not the way that character would be drawn today. Or even the way, really, some a African tribesman would have dressed in the 1970s. He would have had some 
form exactly. of modern regalia on him. This feels like yeah, one of those old jungle movies. Yeah, this is like 1930s and 40s stuff. Right. Um, and again, it's just one more strike against a book that just doesn't have a lot going for it, this issue. Uh, so, like, that panel aside, the art's okay. It's not Plug's best work, but it's okay. Um, Although, speaking of old jungle movies, during one of our breaks, I did figure out what the difference was between Brides of Blood and um, Danger on Tiki Island. Brides yeah. of Blood has topless scenes. Oh, yeah, that'll Yeah, and then they cut out the topless scenes and renamed it Danger on Tiki Island for, I guess, the matinee crowd. Makes sense. <clears throat> or to show as the first film of a double or triple feature. Right. But, you know, just, just a call back to our intro. Yep. Um, and that's somewhat fitting, given that this issue is inexplicably set on uh, a... Uh, movie lot like standing stages which i guess is an excuse to have an old western town in the story because um joshua kane is i guess supposed to be this kind of cowboy character right but he lives in a castle that's right next to the movie set it just raises questions yeah for one thing there's no way that castle has running water or plumbing or anything to make it actually livable Right. No, it's just, it's, it feels like someone made a list of things, they like a list of scenarios they would like to see the werewolf in, but without any thought to how those scenarios fit into the bigger story. Right. Which, I gotta say, again, substituting Craven in for Joshua Kane would have made this story so much more fun. Mm-hmm. And also tie it into the Marvel universe as a whole. The only thing you... right, it would have been it would have been a character that people knew, and so the stakes would have felt higher. The only thing you could not have done if you had substituted in um, Craven is the ironic death at the end of the story, which right. right I think again would have been an improvement. Yeah, because that death doesn't feel earned. Because there's no way you can earn that in a single issue. And it just, it, it felt silly. Like, it, I, it, if it's supposed to be creepy, then it did not succeed. No. Also, again, if Joshua Kane is supposed to be as much of a badass as he's, they've tried to depict him at this point, he would not have died of a heart attack. Right. I don't know. It's, it's a disappointing story. A disappointing issue after such a great issue last time. Right. Um, and I'm hoping that this is an outlier, that we're going to move back to sort of our ongoing narrative with our favorite characters. But uh, I, I just... We talked about how the end of Monster of Frankenstein and even the end of Tomb of Dracula leaves you looking forward to the next issue. This one does not end in a way that suggests there will be a next issue. No. No, it just, it feels 
unconsequential. Yep. So that's a little bit of a disappointment. Yeah. Um, hopefully the next issue is an improvement. We will, uh, certainly find out soon. I just, I was, I, I, I think we've sort of covered what there is to cover about this comic. Yeah. Which means we've pretty much covered what we have to cover for this episode. Um, next episode, we, we won't be talking about Werewolf by Night. That's actually going to be the episode after next, uh, Knock on wood, hoping we don't have any more technical difficulties. <laughs> right. Um, but next episode, we'll be talking about Fear, number 13, a return of Man-Thing. Uh, Marvel Spotlight, number 9, returning to Ghost Rider. And a first for the podcast, one of the Marvel Horror Magazines, Dracula Lives, number 1. So I'm rather excited. Oh, that's, that's about, yeah, exciting. I'm rather excited about the magazine. I, I I'm interested because, uh, from what I understand, the stories in the magazine aren't quite continuity, but they're a little bit more mature. Right, um, because they were magazine format, they were not subject to the comics code. Right, which makes me wonder: Will we be seeing a Danger on Tiki Island or Brides of Blood? <laughs> right. Um. And, yeah, I am sort of curious. Uh, It's going to have sort of, as we go through this magazine, it's going to have a rotating uh, creative team. Uh, Roy Thomas is involved, uh, Steve Gerber, Gardner Fox, uh, various artists. Um, So it should be pretty interesting. Yeah. Again, something to look Uh, forward to. And a longer longer read for us. Yeah, one thing to look forward to as we get into the magazine, I don't think it started with issue one, but somewhere early on, like maybe around the the fourth or fifth issue, uh, Roy Thomas begins his adaptation of the original Bram Stoker novel. Nice. Um, Which was later finished and published as a standalone graphic novel. Okay. So that... Again, another thing to look forward to, because the adaptation we've read so far, the Frankenstein adaptation, has been great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that that's that adaptation of the Stoker novel, of course, will be out of Marvel continuity. It is its own thing. Yeah. So, if you'd like to get in touch with us, we, of course, encourage you to do so, because right now we have no mail in the bag. Yeah, please let us know what you think. If you have comments, questions, uh, feedback, um, you can reach us on Twitter at Tomb of Ideas. Uh, or you can reach us by email. Uh, James, what's the email address again? That's Tomb of Ideas at gmail.com. That's T O M B O F I D A S at sign gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook. You can follow us there. Facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. And uh, let us know what you think. Um, Twitter. We are also, uh, yeah, uh, Twitter uh, at Tomb of Ideas. Uh, or you can reach me at T underscore Lawson. Or uh, James is at uh, Mr. Hickson, I believe. Yep. Um, and uh, make sure that you... Uh, follow us, like us, uh, rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, whether that's iTunes, whether that's 
uh, Stitcher, whether that's Spotify, uh, wherever you listen, please do uh, let us know what you think. And do give a listen to our other uh, Cinepunks colleagues. Right. Uh, our our sister show uh, is uh, The Flight Stuff, going issue by issue through Alpha Flight. Yep, excellent show. And again, one of my favorite runs of comics right there. Some um yeah, and I it's it's been really fun for me as someone who only tangentially knew the Alpha Flight team. Uh, so whether you have read those books before or whether you're you're a newcomer, uh, their show is really great uh, at sort of getting you up to speed on what those books were all about. Yeah, but I think that does do it for another episode of Tomb of Ideas. Um, that's right. So. Uh, Thank you for listening, and uh, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior. ha <laughs> ha